Our passage this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. Do not be bound together with bond believers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for these promises that you have given in this passage, that you're our God and that we're your people. You're our Father and we're your sons and daughters. Father, we just stand amazed that we who are sinful and wicked and as enemies, that you would call us sons and daughters of yours and that you're our God. So Father, we just pray that you'd be with Tom now, that you would speak through him, we pray that our hearts would be open to your word and that, you, that we would be obedient to it. Thank you for this day and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, brother. I always like listening to Paul reading Paul. <laughs> Good morning. Now I know how to get everybody in here, just plan another meeting in the parlor for this hour. <laughs> Sorry, that's snarky, isn't it? <laughs> My title for uh, this morning's message is taken directly from verse 17 of chapter 6. Come out and be separate. Now that is not a command that we find easy to embrace, is it? Uh, most of us prefer to fit in, uh, at least at a reasonable level with the people we rub shoulders with day after day. We, we like the pleasantness of getting along well with other people. We don't want to be seen as foolish. We certainly don't want to be seen as the enemies of the culture in which we live. We don't want to be hated by the world. And we very definitely don't want to lose our jobs or our freedom because the world sees us as intolerably intolerant of the things that they hold dear. But beloved, that is the job description that God has handed us by bringing us into union with Jesus. We don't know how much of that will fall to us, but all of it might. And it might even involve the loss of our lives. That is our calling. And that job description is what this passage is about. It is God's uncompromising command to us through the Apostle Paul to come out 
and to be separate from the godless world in which we live. If we diminish the forcefulness of what Paul is saying to the church here, we will be rewriting the Word of God instead of submitting to it. So we don't have to like this, but we are commanded to hear it, heed it, and live it. Paul's opening exhortation in this passage is do not be bound together with unbelievers. Other translations render that do not become partners or do not be mismatched with unbelievers. The Greek word that Paul uses here is actually a, it provides a very vivid image. It is the word unequally yoked. A farmer would, in, in Paul's day, would know exactly what this means. Um, before the age of engine-driven farm machinery, if you needed to plow deep in dense soil, the only way to get it done was to get a couple of really strong animals and yoke them together to pull the plow. Often one would not suffice. Could be two oxen, two horses, smaller jobs, two donkeys maybe. They're pretty strong. But if a farmer yoked together an ox with a horse or a donkey, that was a sure recipe for failure. The, the larger and stronger animal in that mismatched pair would very literally run circles around the smaller and weaker animal, and the result would be that one or both of the animals would be injured. The problem with mismatching yoke fellows is it doesn't work, because it can't. You can try all you want to get the donkey to take bigger steps and pull harder, or you can try to get the ox to take shorter steps and lighten up a little, but try as they might, the donkey cannot become an ox and the ox cannot become a donkey. Ever since the church has existed, Christian parents have been pointing out verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6 to their believing children as a clear prohibition of God against a Christian marrying a non-Christian. Now, while this passage makes no specific mention of marriage, uh, there's no question that that's a biblically supported understanding of what's going on here, but it's not the whole understanding. The Old Testament contains many, many forceful commands from God to His covenant people not to intermarry with the pagans in all the nations that they encountered and that, that they ultimately conquered. And the reason that God gives over and over for not intermarrying is that marrying an unbeliever is a fast track to abandoning God. It's, uh, and, and it happened over and over and over. Israel was guilty of it. King Solomon was guilty of it. Of following their spouse into the abandonment of the one true God. But the command not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers applies far beyond the context of marriage. This is about the children of God being set apart to God. And that's, please bear that firmly in mind as we proceed. This is, not about, this is much less about what you separate from than what you attach to. And it is because you, if you are set apart to God, and God is set apart from all that is ungodly, 
that changes everything for us in terms of what we can associate with. The word holy means set apart. God, as the infinite personal creator, sustainer, and master of all things, is set apart from his creation. And he is set apart from everything that is common rather than sacred. Everything that is corrupted and unclean rather than pure and clean. Now, entirely by God's doing, we who have been brought into union with Jesus Christ through faith in Him alone have been made holy. We have been set apart to God and thus set apart from everyone and everything that stands against God, that violates His character and His ways. Now, before we go any further, uh, I want to be as clear as the Bible is, if possible, about the fact that this is not a command to, to come out of the world in some geographic or physical sense or to have nothing to do with the world. That's not what this is talking about. In order to serve as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we are all called to do, we must remain in the world. More than that... <laughs> We must, we must be as in the world and as in the lives of lost people as Jesus was during his earthly life. He's our perfect example. In the amazing prayer Jesus prayed to his father in John 17, just before he was arrested, Jesus asked this on behalf of all who would ever come to trust in him. He said to his father, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not, listen to this, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Now, Jesus, in talking to his father, repeats himself there. He starts with, I have given them your word, and he ends with, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And in between, he says, the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not. And he ends by saying, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. He's, he is making this point very, very clear. This is not a command to have nothing to do with unbelievers. Quite the opposite. We are to be in the trenches of life and in the lives of unbelievers. But, beloved, this is a command to have nothing in common with unbelievers. To have nothing in common with unbelievers. And bear with me and this will make more sense. Verse 14a is the exhortation. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now from the second half of verse 14 all the way through verse 18, Paul lays out the basis for that exhortation. And he expands on the exhortation some. That basis in simple terms is in two parts. First, the impossibility of mixing what won't mix. And secondly, what makes it impossible is that we are the temple of God. So first, the impossibility of mixing what won't mix. Verses 14b to 16a. 
In the preceding chapter of this same epistle in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul said, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now in chapter 6, Paul expands on that defining truth and he makes it very clear that the old and the new cannot coexist. The old and the new cannot coexist. In verses 14 to 16, he presents five sharp contrasts. In each of the five contrasts, he is, he is juxtaposing or setting against one another two things that cannot coexist. Two things that are so starkly different that they can never share anything meaningful in common. He presents the five contrasts through five simple what questions using five different synonyms for something shared. What partnership? What fellowship? What harmony? What share or portion? What agreement can there possibly be between these things? He says, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what share or portion has a believer with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? In each case, the unequivocal and uncompromising answer that is clearly implied is absolutely nothing. Nothing that matters. Nothing that's meaningful. These things don't have anything in common. And that, brothers and sisters, is exactly, exactly what makes the truth that is revealed by God to men so repugnant to this world. This thing called exclusivity. The world loves mixtures. Mixtures demand no commitment and no purity. As long as we Christians are okay with mixtures, the world will generally be willing to put up with us, even though they disagree with us. Our conflict with the world arises when we refuse to mix the light that we bear with the darkness that this world finds so accommodating. Truth excludes falsehood. A cannot be non-A. Everything that in any way compromises or corrupts or adds to the truth is called falsehood by God. Truth doesn't mix. Truth is pure. It doesn't mix with anything. By the way, whenever you hear the words my truth or your truth, you can be sure that the person speaking has no connection with truth at all. Truth is an attribute of God. Truth proceeds from and belongs to God. The one and only arbiter of truth is God. We have nothing to do with determining truth, ever. In the same way that truth mixes with nothing, in each of these five pairs, pairings that Paul presents, there is no mix. Righteousness excludes unrighteousness. Righteousness is that which does not match up with the character and the ways of God. The two don't mix. Light banishes darkness. Through faith in Jesus Christ alone, God has 
Colossians chapter 1 has transferred us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And as 1 Peter chapter 2 says, He has transferred us out of the darkness into His marvelous light. Now, I often come across people wearing uh, earrings, necklaces, t-shirts, or tattoos that uh, show this ancient Taoist symbol known as the yin and the yang. Single circle divided into equal and overlapping portions of light and darkness. In a TED-Ed article from 2013, we have this explanation of the yin and the yang. A Chinese philosophical concept that describes how obviously opposite or contrary forces may actually be complementary, interconnected, and interdependent in the natural world and how they may give rise to each other as they interrelate to one another. In other words, light and darkness get along just great. In the yin and the yang, within the dark portion of the circle is a dot of light, and within the light portion of the circle is a dot of darkness to indicate that they are not exclusive of each other. According to, Tao to Taoism, the religion that came up with this symbol, Darkness and light must coexist and mix in order for the soul and for the world to be in balance. By the way, this is exactly, exactly the philosophy that George Lucas explicitly declared he was going to indoctrinate into our children through the Star Wars series. He said, go look at the interviews. He said it. I'm not, I'm not saying don't watch Star Wars. I'm saying recognize what's going on here, guys. The view here is that darkness and light must coexist and mix in order for the soul and the world to be in balance, that both are necessary, each depends on the other, and the light and the darkness are never exclusive of each other. Yeah. Now, this next graphic that I'm putting up is an oversimplification of the Taoist view, but it came from Taoists. I didn't make it up. Top is a black circle, here's the bad. Then white circle, here's the good. Then here's the bad that's in the good, the white with the dot of black. Here's the good that's in the bad, the black with the dot of, li uh, dot of light. And then finally, here's life, the two together. Now I suspect that most people who show off the symbol of the yin and the yang would not exactly identify as Taoist, but the essential view that is represented by that symbol is without a doubt the majority view of unbelieving humanity. Hence the great popularity of the symbol. What does God have to say about this? He doesn't merely call it foolishness, He calls it a lie. A pernicious hell originated lie. God commands us as His children to reject that lie without compromise or accommodation of any kind. In Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, Paul says to Christians, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Is there any mixing going on there? We've been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We're to lay aside the old man and put on the new man. No mix. 
1 John 1, 5 says, And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Is there any overlap there? Is there any mix? Is there any light in the darkness or darkness in the light? No. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that we who were formerly darkness now are light in the Lord. And he says, therefore, walk as children of light. Be who you are, not who you aren't. Is there any overlap there? Any mix? None whatsoever. Belial was a sort of a nickname for Satan in Paul's day in some groups. What does Christ have in common with Satan? Absolutely nothing. Satan is the enemy of Christ. Christ is the enemy of Satan. And we know who's going to win that war, right? God has plucked us, you and me who believe in Christ, He has plucked us out of the hand of Satan and He has brought us into eternal union with Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we all formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You know who that is? That's Satan. We who have been brought into eternal union with Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, now have no association with our former master. No overlap, no mix, just Jesus. What common ground does an unbeliever have with a believer? Paul is saying, none. Trying to be a yoke fellow with an unbeliever is like an ox trying to be a yoke fellow with a chihuahua. <laughs> Except that the ox and the chihuahua have more in common. Oh, and by the way, the chihuahua would see himself as the project manager in that situation. <laughs> The last of the five stark contrasts that Paul presents is between the temple of God and idols. And that's where Paul then camps out for all the way through verse 18. Immediately after saying, what agreement has the temple of God with idols, with the implied answer being none, he says, for we are, we are the temple of God. And this, of course, is one of the, one of the bedrock truths of Scripture. We are the temple of God, the living God. Then in the rest of verses 16 to 18, Paul reminds the Corinthians what God said to his covenant people Israel in the Old Testament scriptures about the temple of the living God. He directly quotes from the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. He also brings in elements drawn from other Old Testament passages and verses, most notably Ezekiel, chapter 36, and Isaiah chapter 52. In verse 16, Paul quotes God as having said this in the past, I will dwell with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Where did God say that? In Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46, God said to Moses, I will dwell among the sons of Israel. Literally, I will dwell in the midst or middle of the sons of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am Yahweh their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell in their midst. 
I am Yahweh, your God. God repeats himself a lot, right? In Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, God said, Moreover, I will make my dwelling with you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. In those two passages, and in very many other passages throughout the New Testament, God declares his intention to dwell among, literally, in the middle of his people and to and to be in blessed relationship and communion with them. I will be your God and you will be my people. In Jeremiah 31, he says, and you will know me. From the least of you to the greatest of you, you will know me. I'll put my spirit within you. Now, Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, God makes it clear that not only will he dwell in the midst of his people, he will dwell in his people. He says, moreover, I, this is the new covenant in the Old Testament. He says, moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. With this marvelous promise of God to dwell among and in his people, now laid out on the table, Paul next goes to the book of Isaiah to restate the key exhortation of this passage in words that Yahweh declared long before Paul came along. Again, here in 2 Corinthians 6.17, Paul says, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. and Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. The passage that he's pointing to is Isaiah 52, specifically verse 11. It says, depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. The last part of that is about the temple. You who carry the vessels of the Lord. Under the law of Moses, Israel was the bearer of the dwelling place of God in their midst. First, the movable tabernacle, and then the permanent building, the temple. Israel, most specifically the tribe of Levi, watched over and maintained all of the vessels or objects associated with the system of worship that the law of Moses prescribed as an earthly picture of the way of access to God who dwelled in that tabernacle, that temple. But that, that earthly dwelling, that earthly tabernacle and temple were never more than a symbol. They were never more than a symbol. An earthly representation of the, of the heavenly reality of God's dwelling place. How do we know that? Because the guy who built the temple said so. In 1 Kings chapter 8, after David had gathered all, from the people all the contribution to build this ornate, elaborate temple, but David had not been allowed to build it, his son Solomon did build it. And in 1 Kings 8, when Solomon dedicated the temple, here's what he said. He said, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. A few verses later, Solomon prays to God. He says, listen to the supplication of thy servant 
and of thy people Israel, when they pray toward this place, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, hear and forgive. Israel was given a stewardship of the earthly tabernacle and temple as a picture as the picture of God's intention to dwell in the midst of His people. But it was just a picture. The fulfillment of that picture, the substance to which that symbol points, is us. The church of Jesus Christ. And it is that magnificent truth to which Paul turns our focus. Paul says, we are the temple of the living God. God promised to dwell in, his, in the midst of His people and to dwell in His people and to walk among His people. He promised that He would be their God and they would be His people. And that only works if that people are set apart to Him. It only works if that people are holy because God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So how does that happen? The cross of Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As was said earlier, as Donnie shared, um, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bore the entire guilt and the entire penalty for our sin on himself when he died on the cross. And when we trust in Him, God puts Christ's righteousness on us. He credits that righteousness to our account. He clothes us with that righteousness forever. And from then on, when God looks at you and at me who have trusted in Jesus, what He sees is the perfect light and righteousness of Jesus. Didn't come from us, came from Jesus. We are the temple of God. We are the bearers of God in the world. We are sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we bear this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing, of the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. What treasure do we bear? He says the treasure we bear is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what we bear to the world. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what people are to see when they look at us. Our identity as the children of God who bear God himself to this world demands that we be set apart to God not only in our standing in the eyes of God, our position, but also in our practice and action. Not in order to become children and bearers of God, but because we have been made children and bearers of God. That's a very important distinction. And there's a flip side to the... To the focus that Paul is giving us here, there's actually a call to unity that's implicit in this separation. Not unity with the world, but unity with each other. You might think that since Paul is addressing an overwhelmingly Gentile audience in Corinth in this letter, that he would avoid appealing to Old Testament passages to fortify his points. 
He does just the opposite. He goes over and over to the Old Testament to make a new, new covenant point. And by the way, there are a lot of preachers today who advocate that practice of unhitching from the Old Testament, of, of not going there because it confuses people. Paul didn't, Paul didn't do that. And we should not. In this letter, as in all of his epistles, Paul freely, repeatedly, and unapologetically goes back to the Old Testament Scriptures to drive home critical new covenant truth. By the way, he never says to those Gentile Christians, oh, it's okay if you have no idea what these Old Testament citations mean. It's okay. He never says that. In fact, the, the, very, the very clear implication in all of Paul's teaching is, if you don't know what this means, you better find out. You need to know this. This is God talking to you. So think about this for just a minute, guys. One of the marvelous God-engineered effects of Paul's very strategic manner of building key New Covenant points from Old Testament citations is that it compelled the Gentiles who believed in Jesus to talk to the Jews who believed in Jesus. If you were a Gentile and you had no context for understanding the citations that Paul is making from the Old Testament, where would you go? You'd go find one of your Jewish brothers in Christ and ask him, or sisters, right? I think there was a whole lot of that going on. And I believe this is all very intentional. If there were two groups of people in the Roman culture that had as little to do with each other as possible, it was Jews and Gentiles until Christ. Read Galatians 3. Read Ephesians 2. But Paul, both by direct teaching and by strategic inference, is saying to the believers in Corinth, Christian, you are as distinct from, un un from unbelievers as light is from darkness. So come out from their midst and be separate. And God has made you one with every other believer regardless of anything that used to divide you. So let nothing separate you. Verse 1 of chapter 7 is the conclusion and the capstone to all that Paul just said in the final verses of chapter 6. 7.1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Our resolve to come out and be separate, set apart to God in all things, is grounded in two defining realities. The promises of God and the fear of God. Let's talk about both. First, the promises of God. Therefore, having these promises, beloved... In other words, therefore, because we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. This is actually a very, a very consistent connection in the New Testament. Second Peter 1, Peter tells us that by God's own glory and excellence, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them, by those promises, we might become partakers of the divine nature 
having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. In other words, that we might be holy in practice. Same thing Paul's talking about. How do we get there? Well, it apparently has something to do with the promises of God. The precious and magnificent promises of God. And those promises are future promises. They're promises that will not be perfectly fulfilled until Christ comes back and claims his bride and we get resurrected and we're with him forever in the place he prepared for us so that God would dwell with us. In 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16, part of this was quoted this morning, Peter says, therefore, gird your minds for action. In other words, be ready to be useful to, be, to God. Gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And every time Peter says that, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's talking about when Jesus comes back and claims his bride. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. That's practical holiness. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's the same connection. Holiness, the practical holiness by which we set aside the lusts that formerly controlled us and be, become partakers of the divine nature, that holiness proceeds from having our hope fixed completely on the grace to be brought to us when Jesus comes back to claim us as his bride. Both Peter and Paul are talking about the believer's living hope. The rock-solid certainty that, that this is what lays before us. This is where God is taking us. He's coming back. He's going to raise us from the dead. He's going to bring us into the very presence of God together with all of his, of his redeemed saints. And he's going to plant us forever in the marvelous place that Christ went to prepare for us. And you've heard me say this over and over. Beloved, that is the central promise of the Bible from cover to cover. The seed form of it was the Garden of Eden. Adam walking, God walking in the cool of the day with Adam. Bringing the animals to him so he could name them. It was, a, it was this marvelous togetherness in all the affairs of man and in the relationship of man with God. And that's where everything's headed for those who belong to God. John, I talked about Paul and Peter, John points us to the same promise, the same living hope as that which purifies us, that which makes us holy in practice right here and right now. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he truly is. When he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he truly is. And then verse 3, listen. Everyone who has his hope, has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. John is saying the same thing that Paul is saying. Paul's saying the same thing Peter is saying. 
That's because they're all saying to the church what God is saying. And this is bedrock for us who desire to be holy, vessels, useful to God, set apart to God. Practical holiness in this life does not come by the strength of our will. And it is not produced in us through guilt or doubt or uncertainty. Holiness, our set-apartness to God, comes as the eyes of our hearts are fixed on the precious and magnificent promises of God. That's what makes us holy. And so if I want to encourage you toward holiness, what should I be talking with you about? The promises of God. The unfathomable riches of Christ. That's what you should be talking to me about too. If, if you want application from this sermon in the form of a list of do's and don'ts, you're not going to get it. Because that's not where Paul goes. That's not where Peter goes. That's not where John goes. That's not where God goes. Where he goes, where he turns our attention, is to the precious and magnificent promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ alone. It is our eyes fixed on him. It is our eyes fixed on all that God has prepared for those who love him. All that God has, has set aside as our living hope. It is that that obsession, beloved, that will, that will change our behavior to holy behavior. The last thing Paul says in the passage is perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And this is, again, something that a lot of Christians kind of, they get it crossed up, skewed. This is, this is a beautiful statement. I'm going to finish by taking you yet again to a passage that God brings, brings me back to continually. I've shared it with you before. 1 Peter 1, again, and I'm going to include some verses we just looked at so you can see the whole thing in context. So I'll start in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, and go to verse 21. Please listen. Therefore, Christians, gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And now verse 17, here's where Peter speaks of the same fear that Paul is talking about. Peter says, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's works, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on this earth. Fear of what? Keep reading. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So let me ask you, is the fear that Peter's talking about fear that you don't belong to Christ? That's not what this passage is about at all. It's about the opposite. So what fear is he talking about? 
Beloved, the fear that perfects holiness in us is not the fear that we might not have the destiny that God promises to His real children. Quite the opposite. The fear that perfects holiness in us absolutely depends on and is built upon the certainty of that destiny. The fear that perfects us in holiness is our right assessment of the fearsome power and measureless worth of the precious blood of Christ by which alone we have been set apart to God as His beloved children forever. The righteous fear of every believer is that we will undervalue the blood of Christ by which we were bought for God. Let's pray. Loving Father, teach us to abide in Your promises that we who have been made forever holy through our blessed union with Christ may be holy in thought and word and action here and now for the glory of our Savior and Master. We ask this in the precious and incomparable name of Jesus. Amen.